Hello and welcome to NTD News Today. We have insights and perspectives on the stories shaping our world. Breaking news, in-depth analysis and inspiration to power your day. And first up, we are going to head into a hearing, a House hearing, on confronting the scourge of anti-Semitism on college campuses. That's held by the Subcommittee on Higher Education and Workforce Development. That's right. The committee is Education and the Workforce. The committee chair is Virginia Fox, a Republican from North Carolina, and the subcommittee chair, uh, Burgess Owens, Republican from Utah. We'll be hearing witnesses from uh, different Jewish organizations as well as a student from Yale who was, um, has some harrowing stories um, of some anti-Semitic anti incidents there on Yale campus. So let's tune in. The Subcommittee on Higher Education and Workforce Development will come to order. I note uh, there's a quorum is present. Without objections, the chair is recognized to call a recess at any time. I'd also like to welcome committee members who are not members of the subcommittee and are waving on to this process for today's hearing. Thank you for joining us today for this very timely and consequential hearing. I want to begin by expressing sympathy for the Jewish members of our community that have felt endangered, discouraged, and disappointed by the exposure of anti-Semitism throughout our country. I also want to thank our witnesses for coming forward to testify and working with our committee during this difficult time of upheaval. This committee is convened today to address the scourge of anti-Semitism spreading like wildfire on college campuses. Uh, as a first step toward eradicating this evil, this committee has invited, has invited Jewish campus and community leaders to help us understand the source of this proliferation. I recognize that anti-Semitism is not a new problem. It has taken on various forms throughout our history, the most noted prior to October 7th with the horrors of the Nazi Holocaust. Both will be forever remain a stain in the annals of human history. The modern form of anti-Semitism is more subtle, for it is often disguised under progressive political indiendos. For example, Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, steeped deeply in a doctrine of Marxism, is anything but inclusive for Jews. Evidence shows that campus DEI bureaucracies play a major role in propagating the spread, spread of anti-Semitism. There's a dirty little secret at the heart of DEI as it seeks to dismantle systems of oppression. It divides the world into oppressors and the oppressed, ascribing collective guilt to the oppressors and collective innocence to the oppressed. But what does this mean for the Jewish community? You think the DEI industry would be sympathetic to the Jewish people's history of oppression, persecution and wholesale slaughter. But no, the DEI hierarchy places the Jewish people at the very bottom of the oppression spectrum. A study from the Heritage Foundation explains that how diversity officers fuel anti-Semitic anti fire. After searching through the Twitter feeds of 741 campus DEI personnel, the Heritage Jay Green found that 96% of the Israel-related tweets were either critical of Israel or explicitly anti-Semitic. DEI programs are at its core anti-Semitic because it ascribes collective guilt to the entire state of Israel for the mere existence. The core principles of this Marxist ideology is not diversity, equity, or inclusion. Instead, discrimination and tolerance and bigotry toward individuals thought to belong to a wrong group. So rather than curbing discrimination on campuses, these DEI bureaucracies stoke racial tensions. A report from the National Association of Scholars found that DI officials routinely organize race-segregated events, 
race-exclusive affinity groups, race-segregated spaces such as black-only dorms, black-only graduations, and race-specific training. You literally cannot make this stuff up. If it reminds anyone of the hate-fueled, the hate-fueled 1960s days of Deep South Jim Crow segregation and the roaming gangs of KKK bullies, it's because it is. Hopefully our witnesses from Yale, Mr. Tartak, can speak more about her experiences from, uh, with campus DEI and if it made her feel included. I cannot think of a time since the 1960s when a group of students were more blatantly targeted, harassed, bullied, intimidated, and physically assaulted than Jewish students in the last month. Swastika graffitied over campuses, Jewish students being segregated in classrooms by their professors, Jewish students at the New York City's Cooper Union being forced to lock themselves in a college library and later escorted out a back, the back door. What is the core of this problem? A gang of face-covering, cowardly bullies who feel no shame and who have, and feel no sphere of accountability from college administrators where this taught is being, is being taught, this hate is being taught. Chance for genocide ring loudly. A Cornell history professor called the pure evil of the terrorist attack on civilian innocence exhilarating. While anti-Semitic speech might be free, it deserves, more, it deserves our moral condemnation. With respect to all free speech, this committee fully supports students' rights to politically express, for political expression. What we do not and will not support is terrorism and threats of violence. We can no longer support the use of taxpayer dollars to cultivate, nourish, and grow hate on our campuses. I look forward to hearing from our witness accounts of exclusive, exclusive, and divisiveness that are now being propagated and promoted throughout our country. DEI definitely plays a large role in formatting this, this hate. But in what other areas should we look at to hold our universities accountable? Once again, I thank you for being here. And with that, I yield uh, to the ranking member for his opening statement. We are tuned into the House hearing on confronting the scourge of anti-Semitism on campus. You just heard from Congressman Burgess Owens, the chairman of this subcommittee. But first up, we want to let you know about a develop recent development. Thousands are expected in Washington, D.C. today in a rally denouncing a rise in anti-Semitism and supporting the release of hostages. The event is organized by the Jewish Federation of North American and the of not of North America and the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. The National Park Service has granted a permit for 100,000 attendees, and the D.C. police have requested the assistance of the National Guard. The event aims to yeah, provide a sense of community and unity after an increase in anti-Semitic incidents following the Hamas attacks in Israel. So now let's just get into our coverage of the hearing. Again, we heard from uh, subcommittee chair Burgess Owens. He was talking about um, the, the, the persecution, sorry, the, um, yeah, the increase in anti-Semitic incidents on college campuses, um, referring back to the persecution of the Jews during the Holocaust That's in right. Nazi Germany. Yes, he did cover a lot of the, the links there that we're seeing the alarm bells ringing because of what has happened in the past, not just in the Holocaust, but stretching far back as we many people know through the history of the Jewish people. Um, That's right, yeah. This, this, the persecution of the Jewish people goes back thousands of years. I mean, 
the ancestral land of the Jews is known as Judea, and um, Jewish people were kicked off that land by the Babylonians, by the Romans. Um, they gave it the name of Palestina um, you know, about 2,000 years ago. And of course, the Jewish people have went back into Israel and created this state called Israel with the blessings of or at the direction of the UN after World War II and after the horrors of the Holocaust. Um, so this is, this is a state that has been sanctioned, has been um, allowed by the nations that were in the UN at the time. That's right, yeah, created to offer safe harbor to, uh, again, a persecuted people that just experienced the worst persecution, um, arguably in human history, the, the, the 1940s persecution of the Jews, where six million Jewish people were murdered um, en masse by the Nazis. And of course, there was an attack on Israel when Israel was formed, but the, the next biggest attack since then was the October 7th attack by Hamas. Um, Israel is not commonly welcomed by the other nations surrounding it, most of the other nations surrounding it in, in the Middle East, and it is a bastion of democracy within that area and of Judeo-Christian values. So that's one reason that it's uh, an important um, an important nation and important to the U.S. That's right. And on October 7th, you know, you, it's like you can't remind it enough. In 9-11 they said, um, never forget, well they call October 7th <clears throat> Israel's 9-11. And on that day, you know, 1,300 um, Israeli citizens, um, most of them citizens, were murdered by Hamas terrorists. These are men, women, and children. Um, children burnt alive, um, people beheaded. And of course, there have been since then also deaths within Gaza, and we don't know the exact numbers because the, the terrorist organization ruling Gaza, uh, Hamas, we, we, we just can't trust their numbers, but they do say 10,000. Otherwise, the Pentagon says at least thousands. Of course, we are going to head back into this hearing and hear more about it, but first, a break. We are tuned into the House hearing on confronting the scourge of anti-Semitism on college campuses. It's hosted by the Committee on Higher Education and the Workforce, and the subcommittee is Higher Education and Workforce Development, chaired by Burgess Owen, the Republican from Utah. Basically what we've been seeing in the past few weeks since the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel is a rise in anti-Semitic incidents um, around the world and of course on college campuses where um, students have, in some cases, been locked inside um, the campus library, hiding from protesters outside, as Burgess Owens was just talking about. Um, we've heard of uh, one student arrested, actually, for threatening to kill men, Jewish men, women, and children, and it's just uh, really quite shocking. A lot of people didn't ever thought that this would happen on the U.S. on U.S. soil. Yes, for sure, and even especially on college campuses, which are meant to be open-minded places um, for the development of ideas. Uh, Congressman Owens, just spe speaking there, we heard um, about what he described as the offices of diversity and inclusion. Ironically, he says engendering bigotry. 
especially in regards to the Jewish people and the state of Israel. So we hope to hear more about this. Um, this was just the beginning, but we do know that Owens has been um, a strong supporter of, of the supporting Israel and the Jewish people. Uh, but let's tune into our hearing and see what else comes of this. This is Scott. Thank you, uh, Chairman Owens, and thank you to our witnesses for your testimony today. It's been over a month since Hamas's terrorist attack on innocent civilians in Israel and the start of a brutal ongoing war in Gaza. This conflict has directly devastated thousands of people, Israelis and Palestinians alike, and countless families and friends across the world and in the United States. Tragically, but not surprisingly, this conflict has also been marked by a rise in both anti-Semitic and Islamophobic incidences on America's colleges and universities. And to be clear, this discrimination is nothing new. Any student of history knows that it did not start with the current war, foreign influences, or any new philosophy. Our colleagues would do well to recall this country's century-long history of racism and anti-Semitism. We can all agree that free speech is a constitutional right and bedrock of our democracy, and colleges and universities have been on the front lines of advancing that right for decades. But we should also be able to agree that schools have a responsibility to protect students' civil rights and safety. And if they don't want to agree to that, Title VI makes it clear that they have that responsibility. Under, President's, uh, direct, uh, under President Biden's direction, the Department of Education has recently provided additional guidance to colleges and universities on how to uphold their obligation under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act and better address anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and other forms of discrimination on campus. And while the Biden administration has taken an active role in helping institutions protect students, regrettably, um, many of my colleagues have spent this Congress fueling divisive and baseless culture wars. Moreover, this week, Congress will consider a government funding bill that includes cuts for the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights, the very agency charged with protecting students from discrimination. So today, I hope my Republican colleagues will denounce the culture wars that have distracted us from protecting our vulnerable students, and I hope we can all stand behind the Biden administration's critical work to ensure that every student and educator has access to a campus free from discrimination, harassment, and violence. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. Thank you, Mr. Scott. Pursuant to Committee Rules 8C, all members who wish to insert written statements into the record may do so by submitting them to the committee clerk electronically in Microsoft Word format by 5 p.m., 14 days after this hearing, which is November 28, 2023. Without objections, the, hear the, the hearing re record will remain open for 14 days to allow such transactions and statements and materials referenced during this hearing to be submitted for the official hearing record. I will now turn to the introduction of our four distinguished witnesses. Our first witness is Rabbi Moshir Howard, who is Executive Vice President of the Orthodox Union, uh, which is located in New York City, New York. Our next witness is, uh, is, is Mr. Kenneth Marcus, who is the founder and chairman of Brandeis Center for Human Rights Under the Law, which is located in Washington, D.C. Our third witness is Ms. Stacy Burdett, 
who is an independent consultant in anti-Semitism anti prevention and response and is located in Washington, D.C. And our final witness is Ms. Sarhar Tartak, who is a student at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. I'd like to thank the witnesses for being here today and look forward to your testimony. Pursuant to community rules, I would ask that each of you limit your oral presentation to a five-minute summary of your written statement. I'd also like to remind the witnesses to be, to, uh, to, to be aware of their responsibility to provide accurate information to the subcommittee. I'd like to first recognize Rabbi Howard. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, members of the subcommittee. Uh, my name is Rabbi Moshe Hauer. Moshe Hauer. I serve, I have the privilege to serve as the Executive Vice President of the Orthodox Union, which is the largest, or, the largest organization serving Orthodox Jews in the world. Uh, but I'm not standing here or sitting here today simply in that capacity. I work day to day together with colleagues across the Jewish community, all of whom, all of us, are engaged in our future who are our students, students on campus. We have an organization that services our communities on campus, and we work side by side with other organizations such as Hillel and Chabad, serving, ortho, serving Jewish students of all types on our campuses. And I hope in these remarks to be able to represent them. And to present to you, in addition to the many specific stories, some of which the chairman mentioned and cited, and others which you will hear here today and will hear unfortunately and sadly in the future, to give you a, a bit of a sense of the bigger picture. We are tuned in to the House hearing on confronting the scourge of anti-Semitism on college campuses. We do know that there has been an uptick ac across the nation in anti-Semitic events, but also especially on college campuses. A according to a recent Quinnipiac poll, 32% um, of young people aged 18 to 35 support Israel's response to Hamas's attack on Israel, which is quite a significantly small amount, I would say. Um, but we have seen various incidents, um, recent incidents of in this uptick. Just on Friday, Columbia University suspended two student groups uh, for who were critical of Israel and because they, uh, you know, they, they, they were using threatening rhetoric and intimidation, which we heard some of from the uh, congressman just now. That's right. There was a professor at Cornell University who said he was exhilarated by the deadly and horrifying attack by Hamas terrorists on Israel on October 7th. There was um, a, a, a Jewish student also at Cornell University who she was trying to walk to her car and there were protesters like in her face screaming at her and uh, they weren't blocking her but they were making it extremely um, uncomfortable for her to, to walk to her car. She also has like a, an Israeli flag on her coffee cup and she like turns it the other way to hide the, the, the flag on campus because she's afraid for her life. And this was the same girl whose family in Israel said they were more afraid for her than um, they are for themselves in a country that's being attacked by rockets on a daily basis. Yes, incredible. And these student groups and, and various um, pe other people within college campuses also making large uh, assertions of their anti-Israel 
sentiment. We saw earlier um, anti-Semitic messages projected onto a library at George Washington University. We know that um, Harvard University student groups uh, have been blaming Israel for Hamas's terrorist attacks. Um, so these events just keep going on and on. Uh, we do know that there's been a 400% uptick across the U.S. Yeah, that's what the American Defamation League says. You know, basically in the two weeks after October 7th, um, there's been a 400% increase in anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. compared to the, two, the same period in the previous year. Also, there's a worldwide increase. It's not just in the U.S. You know, Austria saw a 300% increase, Brazil over 900, um, ne the Netherlands over 800%, and this is all according to the American Defamations League League's uh, a recent blog post that just came out yesterday. And we just heard from Rabbi Moshe Hauer. He was speaking about his testimony covering, um, representing students across the nation, Jewish students across the nation. But I, I did find a quote from the rabbi um, earlier praising B President Biden's interagency task force, uh, which focuses on coordinating um, the federal government's work to combat anti-Semitism. He said that the Orthodox Jewish community, whose members, because of their visibility as Jews, have been so targeted, is grateful for the President Biden's latest action to deploy the full strength of the U.S. government in its fight against anti-Semitism. Of course, that's just one of the actions. We, we do know the Biden administration has rolled out some more tools today in regards to that. Um, but we'll get more into that as this hearing goes on. Um, and I just want to jump in to real quickly correct, I said American Defamation League is Anti-Defamation League. So um, let's jump back into the hearing. Oh, to the commercial break. Welcome back. We are tuned in to the House hearing on confronting the scourge of anti-Semitism on college campuses. It's a hot topic today. We do know the Biden administration has rolled out new tools today trying to combat anti-Semitism on campus as well as Islamophobia, they say. Uh, but we, we are going to look a little at the congressman who is the chairman of this subcommittee, uh, Owen Burgess Owens, he has done a lot of actions recently uh, to support Israel and the Jewish people. He w led a uh, resolution condemning support for Iran-backed terrorist groups, Hamas and Hezbollah, as well as anti-Semitism in colleges and universities. Um, that was recently voted on in the House with a vote of 369 to 23. So 22 Democrats and one Republican voted against it, but on the whole, it was, it was largely voted for. Yeah, and speaking of votes in Congress, the co Congress voted to uh, censure uh, Rashida Tlaib uh, for making comments in a video on uh, X, where she said, um, from the river to the sea, which is essentially the, the narrative of Hamas, the terrorist group that attacked Israel on October 7th, um, she was censured 234 to 188, and uh, 22 Democrats supported it, and four Republicans opposed it. So that's really another tidbit about the backdrop of this hearing on anti-Semitism on college campuses. Let's tune back in. Our organization, like others in the Jewish space, we, we place educators on Jewish campus, on, on university campuses. Educators who are there, who enter the field in order to be able to provide 
a, a home on campus for Jewish students to help nurture their sense of community, their sense of identity, to have a place to come together to celebrate Jewish holidays and the Sabbath, to study, to eat together, to, to maintain their sense of community of their faith community. Today, the entire community of Jews on campus do not need a home, they need a fortress. People who went into this field in order to be able to educate and to nurture, instead find themselves, despite their own trauma and their own fear, having to spend their time just caring for the trauma and the fear of their students. Day to day, instead of educating, they're protecting, they're counseling people, students, how to avoid danger, how to navigate a class where the professor, where the staff that's in the class is creating a hostile environment for the students. The notion of being able to be there, to build, to grow, where the campus is a nurturing environment for all of its students is unfortunately not their reality. Once upon a time, Jews were not admitted to these campuses. Today, we've come a long way. Jews are admitted to every campus. But today, unlike a short time ago, that admission introduces them to an environment where they experience fear and hostility. Which is better, to not be allowed in or to be welcomed and then to be intimidated? Title VI, as you will hear from my friend and colleague, Ken Marcus, Title VI ensures that our environments, our federally funded environments, our university environments are supposed to provide a place where all students are welcome. And what we are experiencing today is a test case in non-compliance to Title VI. I would also like to make a, a, a last point, and that is to draw you back to the big picture of how the Jewish community, the students and the Jewish community as a whole, is experiencing, are experiencing this moment. We are the people of the book, and that book contains values and morals, and it tells us our story. We all know our story, and this is the story of the Jewish people in a nutshell. We've been around for a few thousand years. We come to a country where we live, where we wander to. We thrive there. We contribute to the community, and after a period of time, that country spits us out. That's been our story. We live with it. We know it, and we didn't think it was going to happen here. We believed that the United States of America, built as it is on the principles of liberty and freedom and civil rights, would never spit us out. We never imagined, not five years ago, not one year ago, that we would be sitting here in this committee room because of the kind of vile and terrible anti-Semitism which is being directed at us on campuses. It's in your hands. You are our elected officials. We've entrusted you to bring back the liberty and freedom to, the, to, to our land, to make our community believe again that America will be different. Thank you, Mr. Howard, appreciate that. I would next, next recognize Mr. Marcus. Chairman Owens, Ranking Member Scott, members of the subcommittee, it's an honor to be here today for this briefing. I thank you for holding it and for including me. I am the chairman of the Louis D. Brandeis Center for Human Rights Under Law. We speak every day with Jewish students who are facing anti-Semitism on college campuses. 
a month ago, shortly before the 7th of October, I would have told you that we were facing historic levels of campus anti-Semitism, worse than we had ever seen before. But that was nothing like what we've seen since then. During the weeks following October 7th, we had more than a tenfold increase in intake as compared to the historic levels that we've been seeing before that. And that was even before we announced a joint program with the Anti-Defamation League and Hillel uh, to do intake together, at which point it skyrocketed above that. We have a crisis today on America's campuses. This is an emergency, and I would suggest uh, to this committee that when the problem is exceptional and unprecedented, the solutions need to be unprecedented and exceptional. We are tuned into the House hearing on the scourge of anti-Semitism on college campuses. It's hosted by the Subcommittee on Higher Education and Workforce Development, chaired by, the, by Burgess Owens, a Republican from Utah. It's about the rise in anti-Semitism on college campuses and what to do about it. We started our segment just now, continuing our testimony from Rabbi Moshe Hauer. He's the executive vice president of the Orthodox Union. It's the largest uh, organization serving Orthodox Jews in the world. And he gave just a, a really emotional and poignant plea to Congress people. He talked about Jews on campuses um, not needing a home, but needing a fortress mm. because of anti-Semitic incidents there. You know, I mentioned earlier students at, um, at one university locking themselves in a library to avoid harassment from a crowd outside, having to sneak out the back door. Um, you know, he said at one point, Jews were not admitted on, college, on some college campuses, but um, you know, he said, Which, what's better, um, being banned from a college campus or being welcomed to a college campus, but being intimidated? Yeah, he brought up a very poignant point as well about expulsion being part of the Jewish people's history and their story, but that he said they never ever believed that they would face that prospect here in the U.S., in the land of the free, calling on, on lawmakers to really put this libertarian and this sense of freedom first and the protection of, of the Jewish people and religious rights and right to expression as well. Yeah, he said it's in your hands to the Congress people. We also heard from Kenneth Marcus Esquire. He's the founder and chairman of Brandeis Center for Human Rights Under Law. He's, he said prior to October 7th, they saw historic levels of anti-Semitism um, in the U.S. and on college campuses. But he said uh, after October 7th, there was a tenfold increase. Right. Yeah, yeah, and just coming back to the rabbi, um, he'll be speaking today at a rally on the National Mall, which is a march for Israel, the pro, pro-Israel rally, um, which which we'll be covering later today. Um, but but he really spoke about the faith community needing to nurture that community, but now also needing to counsel and um, comfort students who are facing such troubles on campus now. Yeah, and uh, Rabbi Hauer also spoke about the, the situation on Fox News, this anti-Semitic situation we're encountering in our country. And he said, you know, um, the Jewish people are, uh, are peaceful people. And he said, everything they do is for peace. You know, this principle of turn the other cheek is something that the Jewish people follow, he said. Um, but he says, what we're seeing here in Israel, the attack 
by Hamas on October 7th on Israel was um, not, a, not an instance where you turn the other cheek. You know, if I insult you, Steph, you know. Which you would never do. <laughs> I would never do it. But, you know, you know if, if you have that, if you're following that principle, um, you know, you don't let it get to you and you, you know, figuratively turn the other cheek and just kind of let it go. Mm. But, um, you know, when somebody is attacking your people to eliminate the people that you belong to, the Jewish people, like Hamas, um, uh, he's saying that's not an instance where you turn the other cheek and, and, and he, he feels that the Jewish people are right to um, seek to destroy Hamas. So we'll have more on this hearing on uh, countering anti-Semitism on college campuses after the break. Welcome back. We are tuning in to a House hearing on confronting the scourge of anti-Semitism on college campuses. That's the title of the hearing. Um, we've heard from uh, 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 Rabbi Moshe Hauer, uh, uh, vice president of the largest organization serving Orthodox Jews. Um, we also heard from Kenneth Marcus, founder and chairman of the Brandeis Center for Human Rights Under Law. Um, today is also the day of a march for um, Israel down in D.C. Um, it's uh, denouncing the rise in anti-Semitism in the U.S. and around the world. And today is also the day that the Biden administration is rolling out new tools to try to address the rise in anti-Semitism and Islamophobia on college campuses. Um, some of those new tools we will get into a little later, but another recent action just over the weekend, Harvard alumni, a Harvard alumni group threatening to withdraw funding uh, for what they call anti-Semitism happening on campus and whether if that's not addressed, they say they'll withdraw their funding. So there's, there's a lot happening right here and very, very up to the minute um, things are developing. And we'll let you know more about that rally later in, the, in our uh, broadcast. But first, let's head back into the hearing. My testimony describes some of what's happening on college campuses, but the uh, uh, chairman's uh, uh, opening remarks reflects an understanding of that. Students are being assaulted. Students are being threatened. There is a vandalism. There's harassment of all sorts, not just on a few hotspot campuses, but all over this country, including at institutions that we had previously considered to be entirely safe for Jewish students. Let me suggest, if I may, a few answers, because there are things that can be done, especially under the statute that uh, Rabbi Howard mentioned, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The Biden administration has addressed anti-Semitism in various ways, and I think should be praised for issuing a national strategy on anti-Semitism. The Office for Civil Rights, or OCR, which I formerly headed at the U.S. Department of Education, has issued dear colleague letters and has had various meetings and public events, which I think are helpful. But much of that was what I would call October 6th thinking. We are now in an emergency. Here are a few things that should be done, certainly within the next 30 days. Number one, the Secretary of Education has authority to institute compliance reviews. When I served in the George W. Bush and Trump administrations, when there was a matter of national importance that we wanted to address and bring public attention to, we would establish a nationwide initiative with investigations proactively addressed through all of the regions of the, uh, agen of the agency. That would put significant resources, but also raise public attention. There is no need 
need to simply wait for complaints to come in, the agency can reach out. Second, even short of compliance initiative, the agency has the power to institute self-directed investigations. Jewish communal organizations like mine are thinly stretched. We are providing complaints where we can, as fast as we can, but the U.S. Department of Education has the authority anytime it opens the newspaper or watches the news to investigate in those cases of which there are many in which it is apparent that there are issues of noncompliance with federal law. Third, Executive Order uh, 13899 on, on combating anti-Semitism. Uh, the uh, Biden uh, administration has committed over and over again to issue uh, regulations implementing uh, President Trump's former executive order on combating anti-Semitism, which remains active policy, but uh, lacks the durability of a regulation. Uh, this has been delayed and delayed again. It is now due next month in December. It would be unfortunate at a period of extreme anti-Semitism for this to be delayed again, and yet there's been no mention of it in either the national strategy or the most recent OCR report to this Congress and the President. At a minimum, the administration should do what it has promised and what it had promised long before October 7 and issue the notice of proposed rulemaking regarding Executive Order 13899. Fourth, the Anti-Semitism Awareness Act. That's up to this Congress, not uh, the uh, uh, executive branch. Uh, but there is legislation that has been introduced that would formalize and codify uh, the executive order uh, established by uh, the last uh, uh, president, uh, President uh, Donald Trump. Uh, this would provide uh, tools needed by OCR in order to ensure that there will be consistent standard use of the uh, understanding of anti-Semitism. Those are four things, but in general what we need is not just um, good words, uh, not just an occasional letter, but a combination of strong guidance and most importantly, proactive action. There is no need to simply wait for complaints to come in. The federal government should take action and there's no reason why it cannot do so within these next 30 days. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Mr. Marcus. Um, I will now recognize Ms. Burnett. Burnett. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chairman Owens and Ranking Member Scott for this opportunity. Anti-Semitism isn't just a threat to Jews, it's a threat to democratic norms and American values. Its presence has always been a warning sign about the health of free democratic societies. All the members here have noted that what we're seeing isn't new. It follows the core logic of anti-Semitism throughout history. It's a lie to blame Jews for what's wrong in the world. You've also recognized anti-Semitism is a feature, not a bug, of American society and history. The demand for a better life for Palestinians is a worthy cause, but attacks on Jewish students have nothing to do with criticism of Israel's policy or actions. They don't serve Palestinian freedom or advance any peaceful future for Israelis and Palestinians. Here's what some of the most responsive universities I've seen have in common. Number one, they get that this isn't business as usual. We've heard from the other panelists, October 6th was a different world. They've been communicating steadily and repeatedly with students and faculty to remind them. Anti-Semitism violates, first of all, the university's values. There are rules, there are parameters around protests. They've increased security, services like escorts and hotlines to report threats. Some have formed anti-Semitism task forces to look system-wide at policies and even their academic offerings. We hear the call from communities 
Where are my allies? Jews need support. We need solidarity. And we need recognition that anti-Semitism is serious. We're tuned in to the House hearing on combating the scourge of anti-Semitism on college campuses. You just heard from Ms. Stacy Burdett, independent consultant in anti-Semitism prevention and response. And just before her was Mr. Kenneth L. Marcus Esquire, the founder and chairman of the Brandis Center for Human Rights Under Law. He spoke about this uh, distinction between the actions um, of the Biden administration being what he described as October 6th thinking. And he suggested uh, a new way of thinking, new strategies outlining four or five actions that he thinks should be taken. We'll, we'll get into those. Um, but we also are looking at the Biden administration's actions right now. What what are they doing? Today they outlined uh, new tools that they were rolling out to try to combat anti-Semitism on campus. We've already mentioned those. Some of those include guides for combating anti-Semitism and, and, and Islamophobia on campus. Also listening groups um, for educators and student groups across through from K through to college level. Um, and this national strategy that we heard about earlier, that's all part of the national, national strategy. Right, and, and Marcus was saying that, you know, this, again, even, all, of, all of that was part of this October 6th thinking before right. the Hamas attack. And like you were saying, he, he, he's calling for uh, something more and what he, he's talking about, um, you know, not just waiting for complaints of anti-Semitism to come in to uh, organizations set up to deal with this, especially the federal government, um, but actually going out and proactively um, looking for um, incidents and, and really just um, implementing what he called compliance reviews, not looking for incidents. Um, but yeah, taking a more proactive approach to addressing this. And he spoke a lot about the um, executive, um, executive tools used that the, the previous administration, the Trump administration, had used to combat anti-Semitism, taking on the, um, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's definition of anti-Semitism as the federal government's standard for combating hate towards Jews. And that's, that definition states that it involves a certain perception of Jews expressed as hatred towards Jews with manifestations directed towards individuals, their property, Jewish community institutions, and religious facilities. And he was really saying that uh, making this more formal and not just an executive order uh, will help to combat anti-Semitism in all of, all of its forms. Right, and you know, what is that anti-Semitism? What does it look like? How is it playing out? Well, um, we were hoping to hear from uh, Sahar Tartak, uh, student at Yale. It looks like we won't have time for that because we'll be heading into the news shortly. But she, was saying, she, she actually received threatening messages um, from her peers uh, about her, her being Jewish. Um, she said um, peers threatened her on online platforms and um, also the editors of Yale's uh, school newspaper uh, censored her pro-Israel column. Um, so, you know, and that goes back to the incident I was talking before about uh, the other woman um, Cornell at Cornell University who um, was harassed on her way to her car. I mean, there were those students that were locked in a, locked themselves 
in in a library to avoid being harassed by a mob. Right. Also at Cornell, where um, and there was an online discussion forum where. Uh, Jews were called the excrement on the face of the earth, and they were threatened with rape and beheading, and bombarded with demands such as eliminate Jewish living from Co Cornell campus. Um, somebody was actually arrested, has been charged with posting violent threats. Um, he was a 21-year-old junior. Um, but these 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 incidents are not just located in one or two or three or four college campuses. Um, as we heard from the witnesses just earlier, it can be found at many levels uh, across the school system. That's right. And we talked before about the 400% increase in, on, of anti-Semitic incidents here in the U.S., but also um, worldwide. Um, you know, Austria has seen a 300% increase in anti-Semitic incidents, Brazil over 900, Netherlands 800% increase. So this is a global, a global uh, problem. You know, also there was the, that, that airport in Russia where a plane from Israel landed and a mob stormed the airport looking for, purportedly, reportedly looking for Jewish people. Yeah, there's um, been actually just too many incidents and we could, we could go on about that. I do want to point out that that Cornell student uh, was not necessarily arrested but has been charged. Um, so we're going to head into the news. We do hope you stay tuned for all of our recent updates uh, for the latest of what's happening around the U.S. and the world. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. Thousands of demonstrators heading to the nation's capital in a show of support for Israel. The rally comes as the war with Hamas enters its sixth week. Hear what the organizer has to say. The United Auto Workers planning to organize even more aggressively, and this time, the union has its eyes on the non-union auto plants owned by foreign companies. Should U.S. bank regulators hike bank capital requirements? Top bank regulators testify before Congress as they face increasing pressure from lawmakers. Using the government to take on political enemies, reporters, reports say that former President Trump's plan if he gets back in the White House. Find out how Trump's campaign responded to the rumors. A record-setting Thanksgiving for air travel. U.S. airlines expect some 30 million passengers for this holiday season. Find out the peak travel days. A CEO resigns after controversial Israel tweets. One of the world's largest tech events in the world now has a new boss. Find out what she says about the controversy and what the previous CEO said about Israel. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hello and welcome to NTD News Today. We have insights and perspectives on the stories shaping our world. Breaking news, in-depth analysis, and inspiration to power your day. Now for our top stories. The U.S. is imposing a third round of sanctions on Hamas and its allies. The new sanctions target the terror group's leaders and financiers. A Lebanon-based money exchange is also sanctioned, along with its owner and founder. 
The U.S. accused the company of transferring tens of millions of dollars to Hamas. The sanctions freeze all U.S. assets and generally bar Americans from doing business with them. Hamas is a U.S. and EU-designated terror organization. Israel has vowed to wipe out the group following its October 7th rampage that left around 1,200 people dead. And thousands are expected in Washington, D.C. today in a rally denouncing a rise in anti-Semitism and supporting the release of hostages. The event is organized by the Jewish Federation of North America and the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. The National Park Service has granted a permit for 100,000 attendees. And the D.C. police have requested the assistance of the National Guard. The event aims to provide a sense of community and unity after an increase in anti-Semitic incidents following the Hamas attack in Israel. We're going to demonstrate to uh, the leadership uh, of this country, to the Congress, to the President. We're going to thank them for their support of Israel. A poll released today shows 83% of Americans support Israel's right to respond to this atrocity by Hamas. Uh, and we're going to call on them to continue those policies. We will stand on the National Mall in the, in the most visible place in this country and say America will not stand for this and our community will not stand for this. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is warning that Hamas doesn't just pose a threat to the Middle East. He told Fox News' Sean Hannity that the terror group is also a danger to Europe and the U.S. If we don't win now, then Europe is next and you're next. And we have to win. We have Let to win. There you, is you, no okay. substitute for total victory. Netanyahu framed the war with Hamas as a battle between civilization and barbarism. He said Israel has to win for their own sake and for the people of Gaza. He said Hamas has brought them bloodshed, poverty and misery. The Israeli leader also warned the world of other dangerous actors, including Hezbollah and Houthi rebels in Yemen. The Biden administration is rolling out new tools to address anti-Semitism and Islamophobia in schools. It includes guides for preventing acts of hate, listening sessions with educators, and it builds on recent actions by the White House, including assisting with law enforcement on college campuses, as we heard earlier. Earlier today, I spoke with Roger Simon, the author of American Refugees, which is out January 10th. He's also the director of the Epic Times NTD Collab, the Presidential Roller Coaster 2024 on Epic TV. Roger Simon, thank you so much for joining us today. To begin with, in light of the Biden administration's recent actions introducing new tools to combat anti-Semitism, and they also say Islamophobia in schools, what do you think of their effectiveness in terms of battling anti-Semitism across the nation? Hard to say, but I don't think they'll be great because a wave has already occurred. It, it's, not, it's not a simple thing at all to deal with because a war is going on and I don't know. I feel very badly for all the Jewish kids going to college now. I mean, really badly because- It does. It's not a happy experience for them. You know, the Israeli government is in a trap because if they don't, if they don't finish off Hamas, Hamas will come back. In fact, Hamas has said they would come back. They've made it very clear. So it, they have to finish them off. But as they finish them off, everything looks uglier and uglier. And anti-Semitism is, is fanned globally, particularly on campus. And so what more do you think the Biden administration could do at this time 
to combat anti-Semitism, especially on campus? Shut up about lies such as, oh, Islamophobia is a problem. Islamophobia is not a problem. <laughs> In fact, it's a made-up word. It doesn't even exist it's because a phobia is a false fear. And, and it, there is no false fear here. So it, it's like, it's nonsense and it's vote. It has to do with votes, Muslim votes, not, not reality. There do seem to be hate crimes against uh, Palestinians in this nation as well. Um, what do you say to that? Oh, all hate crimes are awful. They're terrible. But, but, but uh, you know, statistically, uh, over the last few years, it's, uh, the hate crimes against Jews are vastly greater. And that, that is not admitted by any of these people. They, they, all of a sudden they go and, and they point to Islamophobia before, almost automatically, as uh, our press secretary did. It was like, uh, it, it's just kind of a neurosis. And looking particularly at college campuses, we do see that a group of 1,600 Harvard alumni have threatened to withdraw their funding or stop their funding um, if this issue of anti-Semitism isn't dealt with on campus. Do you think these kinds of actions could have a large effect, or what do you think could have a large effect? That's great. Largely symbolic. Unfortunately, Harvard in particular and all the IVD schools are so rich, in some cases richer than in many countries in Africa. Uh, this is sort of a drop in the bucket. And they're also being financed by the U.S. government and China and various <laughs> to, to such extremes that, you know, it's great that those alumni are doing that. And zooming out a little to pro pro-Israel uh, efforts here. We, we're seeing today a March for Israel on the National Mall. How effective do you think that will be? What kind of message could it send? And how important are things like the actions like this? It, they, they signal that we are here. Unfortunately, the, the marches on the other side seem to be more bigger and more worldwide. So it's a little bit frightening to me. <laughs> but. Uh, you know, it's, it signals that we are here and um, we're marching, and that's good. But, but uh, the reality is something is very bad is brewing and it has to be stopped. I mean, uh, what's very remarkable in the whole thing is that the anti-Semitism now is quite public, whereas during the Nazi period, the Wannsee conference that created the final solution with Heydrich and all those people, took place in secret in January 1942. The Nazis did not want to admit how bad they were. People today don't seem to care. Ah. That's the blood curdling. Indeed. Roger Simon, great to speak with you on this important topic. Thank you so much. Thank you. The United Auto Workers, or UAW, union is planning to aggressively organize non-union auto plants. This comes after winning new contracts with the Detroit three automakers. Last month, the UAW won new contracts with General Motors, Ford Motor, and Chrysler parent Stellantis. They secured a 25% wage rise through 2028 and other benefits. Then on Monday, Korean automaker Hyundai said it will hike wages for non-union U.S. production workers also by 25% by 2028. 
Japanese automakers Toyota and Honda have already done the same after the UAW deal. The UAW for decades has unsuccessfully sought to organize auto factories operated by foreign automakers. But UAW President Sean Fain said the following during a testimony to a Senate committee today. The non-union companies are doing this because they're scared. They're scared that their workers see a better life. And, and the companies tried to head that off, you know. Uh, they've used fear, uncertainty, and division to try to break the unions. And I promise you here, those days are over. The Federal Reserve Bank's regulators are defending plans to hike bank capital requirements. They are testifying before Congress as they come under increasing pressure from many lawmakers to rein in their efforts. However, some banks have recorded sizable declines in the fair value of assets as interest rates have increased, putting pressure on tangible capital. These banks are actively managing the resulting set of risks, but these could take some time to address. Additionally, some banks that have high reliance on uninsured deposits are using more expensive funding sources to manage their liquidity. Looking forward, preserving a sound and resilient banking system requires continued attention to address identified vulnerabilities and vigilance to changing conditions. It will be the first official's first appearance on Capitol Hill since proposing the Basel III endgame rules in July. The proposal would overhaul how banks gauge risk and, in turn, how much capital they must hold against potential losses. Regulators say stronger cash cushions will make the financial system safer and are especially crucial after three banks failed earlier this year. But lenders have attacked the proposal, saying it will hurt lending and the broader U.S. economy. As part of their campaign to kill the Basel proposal, banks have been lobbying lawmakers to put pressure on the regulators. On Monday, 39 Senate Republicans asked the regulators to scrap the proposal, citing economic harm. Michael Barr, vice chair for the supervision at the Federal Reserve, defended the proposal in front of the Senate Banking Committee today. The Senate is considering a rule change to confirm military promotions. Major Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said the Rules Committee will mark up a resolution today to confirm over 350 military promotions. This would break the hold that Senator Tommy Tuberville has maintained for nine months in protest to the Pentagon's abortion policy. Schumer said he will bring the resolution to the Senate floor for a vote as soon as possible. However, it's unclear if there is enough Republican support to pass the measure. If it does pass, Senate procedure for confirming non-political military promotions would change for the rest of the 118th Congress, which ends in January 2025. Senator Tuberville has been holding up confirmations over a Pentagon policy that pays for abortion-related travel for service members. And former President Trump is pushing back against rumors about what he'd do in a second term. Reports say that he'd crack down on illegal immigration, take on political enemies, and more. Top Trump campaign advisors are responding, writing these reports about personnel and policies that are specific to a second Trump administration are purely speculative and theoretical. This comes after the Washington Post and the New York Times published Trump's alleged plans for a possible second term, such as cracking down on illegal immigration, installing lawyers who support his agenda, and using the government to go after political enemies. The last point is something Trump and his supporters have been accusing Democrats of doing. 
using the government and the justice system to go after him. And a win for the former president in Michigan. Trump made it on the 2024 primary ballot, at least for now. Michigan's Democratic Secretary of State released the list of candidates on the ballot yesterday. However, Trump's name could still be taken off in the future. That's because lawsuits against him are still ongoing in Michigan, citing the 14th Amendment. It prohibits someone from running for federal office if the person engaged in insurrections or rebellions while in office. The state secretary said state law required her to release an initial list of candidates by 4 p.m. Monday afternoon. Former President Trump's social media platform Truth Social is losing millions of dollars. It's now merging with Digital World Acquisition Corporate. Trump Media and Technology Group, which owns the platform, announced a new milestone in the merger. The companies on Monday announced that they filed a crucial document. The Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, previously delayed the merger. Trump's company now filed documents showing Truth Social is not profitable, losing millions of dollars. They argue that it will be hard for them to raise more money, and that's why they need to merge. Trump Media calls the filing a monumental milestone, adding that the company looks forward to working with the SEC to bring the deal to a close as quickly as possible. And up next, children face a new health hazard from colorful beads. A New Jersey congressman introduces legislation to ban the toys from being marketed towards kids. And a new inflation report out today. The number came in cooler. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. A New Jersey congressman has introduced legislation to ban water beads marketed as toys for children. The lawmaker warns that the colorful water-absorbing balls can be deadly. And you can see why children are attracted to them. Uh, you know, they have these kits, all different kinds of things where you can buy them online or in the store, and, ch and children are attracted to them. Representative Frank Pallone Jr. is sounding the alarm on the potential hazard. Water beads come in a variety of colors, and bright colors can make them look like anything from candy to young children. When dry, water beads can be the size of a pinhead, but they can grow much larger when they come into contact with water. The danger is that the beads can absorb bodily fluids if swallowed. According to the Consumer Product Safety Commission, they can cause internal injuries and even death. In September, the agency issued a recall for tens of thousands of water bead activity kits. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is warning doctors to watch out for lead poisoning in children. At least 22 toddlers age 1 to 3 got sick after eating tainted pouches of applesauce. The illnesses are part of an outbreak tied to brands Wanabana and Apple Cinnamon Fruit Puree and Schnucks and Weiss, and Weiss Cinnamon Applesauce Pouches. The CDC said at least one child's blood showed lead levels eight times beyond the level that raises concern. There's no safe level of lead exposure. Symptoms include headache, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, changes in activity level and anemia. 
The kids may show no signs of exposure at all. Children suspected of eating the lead-tainted applesauce should be tested. Lead exposure could, can lead to severe learning and behavioral problems. The CDC said there were cases linked to the applesauce in 14 states. New inflation data for the month of October just released this morning by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Joining us now to discuss the numbers is NTD business host Don Ma. Don, how do the new figures look? All right, let me just give you uh, real quickly the big numbers uh, in this report today. Uh, so month over month, the consumer price index uh, is very little changed, uh, came in at 0.4% in October compared uh, to the month before. Um, and the headline number is where we're getting a cooler uh, report and that came in at 3.2% uh, year over year. And last month, uh, the year over year comparison was at 3.7%. So that's down a bit uh, from last month, which was welcome news, of course. And let's just quickly talk about core CPI. Uh, so the core uh, consumer price index excludes uh, food and energy, which uh, the Fed considers volatile. And that came in 4.0%, uh, which is also a bit uh, lower compared to the month before. And what contributed to uh, this cooler number was actually a drop in gasoline prices. And we know that fuels into the CPI. So it's, uh, it's no surprise that it uh, came down a little bit. And what's the sentiment surrounding these new numbers, Don? Yeah, so I, I mentioned it's a bit cooler, right? It came in a bit lower uh, year over year on the headline side. So, you know, this is welcome news for, for a lot of people. That's including economists, uh, uh, investors as well. And this uh, really increases the confidence uh, among many that uh, the Federal Reserve is done increasing interest rates because, of course, the Fed is looking for inflation to come down to 2%. And this cooling, this new number, um, perhaps is good news for the Fed. Um, so many investors, economists, analysts, uh, you know, are a bit more confident after this report, seeing that uh, inflation has cooled on the headline side. And Don, what's the latest news in the business world? All right, so other than that, it seems like small businesses sentiment fell for a third consecutive month in October. And this is according to a National Federation of Independent Business Survey. It shows that sentiment is below its 50 year average for nearly two years now as October. Some small businesses reported reduced profits, uh, citing weakening sales, higher uh, input costs. And economists with the National Federation of Independent Business says that owners are actually not optimistic about better business conditions. Uh, he says small business owners are not growing their inventories. Uh, this is as labor and energy costs are not coming down. Uh, so this is making it a bit of a gloomy outlook for the remainder of the year. And other than that, uh, the U.S. plans to buy 1.2 million barrels of oil to help replenish the strategic petroleum reserve. Uh, of course, uh, this is after it sold off the largest amount ever last year. This is according to a Monday statement from the Energy Department. And the department said the planned purchase for the oil is at an average price of around $77 per barrel. Um, last month, the Energy Department also said it hopes to buy 3 million barrels for December delivery and another 3 million for January. 
And finally, uh, Thanksgiving right around the corner. So turkey prices, let's talk about that. It's down this year, but it seems like some of the side dishes are going to cost you more. Um, so here's some tips that I have to potentially help you save a little bit. Um, so first, you got to create a budget, you know, shop early and shop in bulk. Start looking for those deals now. Uh, and when you do go shopping, consider cutting out some of the dishes that maybe aren't that popular at the table. Um, for me personally, uh, it's cranberry sauce. I know a lot of people like that, but this is just a personal preference here. Uh, another thing you can do is go potluck. Uh, experts recommend uh, you ask guests to bring the desserts or sides. Uh, that way you can split the cost, right? And that way, your mother-in-law will finally stop complaining about your mashed potatoes. It's going to be somebody else's fault uh, this year. Uh, it's a little bit more work, but it's going to help you avoid high price marks up, markups. And Don, I just have to ask before you go, what do you have against cranberry sauce? You know, I don't have anything against cran cranberry sauce in particular. You know, uh, different people have different tastes. And I think, uh, you know, personally for me, I prefer something else. All right, fair enough. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> Thank you, Don. U.S. airlines are predicting a record Thanksgiving travel season. A group representing the industry has forecasted around 30 million people will fly over for the holiday. That would be an all-time high and up 9% from last year. It would also be 1.7 million above the pre-pandemic record. Airlines for America represents United, Delta, and other big names. It says November 26th will be a record-setting day with 3.2 million travelers expected. The Transportation Safety Administration is expecting similar numbers over the holiday season. All the forecasts come despite cuts in services to New York airports due to air traffic control staffing issues. Looking beyond Thanksgiving, some now see travel to Asia-Pacific destinations as the next boom market. Delta says it plans to increase capacity to the region by up to 50% over the December quarter. And coming up, Germany now says it won't reach a set goal regarding support for Ukraine. Find out what the country is planning to do next. And a tech company now in trouble for not saving data from private citizens. We bring you the latest update on the Russia-Google feud when we return. Back to the news. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warning that China's slowing economy could hurt other countries. But her stance on whether the U.S. should decouple with, from China is drawing criticism from some Republicans. Entity's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more from the APEC summit in San Francisco. During a press conference here in the APEC summit in San Francisco, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said that during her meetings with Chinese officials, they talked about a slowdown in the Chinese economy. That it presents a downside a risk to the economic outlook that could affect um, probably not so much the United States, but many um, APEC economies that have deep trade relations. And while the U.S. is seeking to strengthen the supply chain security by moving a supply chain away from mainland China, Yellen says the U.S. is not trying to decouple from China economically. But the chairman of the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, Mike Gallagher, told me over the weekend that the U.S. should decouple from China strategically. Watch. 
I think we have to decouple in key areas. When we decided to shift from most favored nation status to permanent normal trade relations status and then WTO accession, we abandoned the human rights agenda yes. uh, with China. Completely abandoned it, right? It's this resurrection of an idea we thought was dead, whereby we can engage with China economically, diplomatically, and hope that they become a responsible stakeholder in the international system. That's failed for over 20 years. It's going to fail again if we go back to that. Meanwhile, as President Biden is set to meet with the head of the Chinese Communist Party here in San Francisco on Wednesday, massive protests are being planned as some Chinese dissidents and victims of the Chinese Communist Party's persecution are coming out to protest Xi's presence here. They say that Xi should not be welcomed here as he's the culprit of China's many human rights abuses. Reporting from San Francisco, Iris Tao, NTD News. At a major meeting at a major summit, President Biden and Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping are scheduled to meet in San Francisco at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit, or APEC, as Iris was just telling us about. We speak with the publisher of the Journal of Political Risk, Anders Kaur, for analysis of this highly anticipated and already controversial event. Anders Kaur, thank you for joining us again. To begin with, what is the APEC summit and why should people care about it? Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation is a long-standing international organization that involves a bunch of Asian countries, the United States, some other countries, to get together and talk about uh, cooperating economically. Um, it's a major event because a lot of heads of states will be there. Uh, President Biden will be there. Xi Jinping will be there. Um, on the sidelines, the two of them are planning to meet, which is a pretty big deal. It's, I would say, the highlight of the summit this year. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The big news is that these two are going to meet. What's at stake for China in this meeting? China wants to increase its economic access uh, to U.S. markets. They want to bring tariffs down. Uh, they're, they're going to be looking to increase their sales of uh, solar, uh, electric vehicles. Um, they want to protect uh, the access of their social media companies like TikTok, their um, you know internet sales companies like Temu and Shane. Um, so there's there's a whole bunch on the table for them in terms of economically, militarily, uh, diplomatically. There are also major issues like the Ukraine war, Israel war. All of this will be on the table for discussion. What about the U.S.? Uh, the United States uh, is looking at, I mean, they're definitely looking at increased access, market access for our U.S. corporations uh, into China, which is a historically closed market. Um, we're also looking, I think, at uh, fentanyl as an issue. About 73,000 Americans die every year from fentanyl overdose, and that will be a big issue. It's definitely a big issue for the American public. Um, and it should be a big issue that uh, President Biden will push in the summit. Now, what's the significance of this meeting, given, like you mentioned, the icy relations between the U.S. and China, you know, with Taiwan, Israel, Ukraine, and so many other issues? It's significant. I mean, the what they're hoping, I think, in terms of the U.S. side, is that there will be a thaw in relations. Um, and uh, it's just been so difficult with China. Xi Jinping is really pushing on all fronts 
to expand his power and control both internally within China, but also externally in terms of the recent uh, takeover of Hong Kong, the threatened invasion of Taiwan. Um, you know, they've even, you know, state media in China has even talked about invading Philippines or uh, Australia. There's just so many issues that are uh, very, very difficult uh, between the U.S. and China uh, that the U.S. is hoping for some kind of a thaw in relations. All right. And Taiwan is looking to secure a one-on-one -on -one with President Biden at the summit. What would be the significance of Biden meeting with both the leader of China and leaders from Taiwan at this summit? Such a meeting between President Biden and uh, leaders from Taiwan would be sort of a tacit recognition of Taiwan's statehood. Uh, it wouldn't be uh, stated so bluntly, but uh, China would see it as some kind of a, a, a state recognition that they, they don't like to see these sorts of heads of state visits or even high level uh, visits between Taiwan and other countries. Uh, so it would be, it, it, you know, it would make it difficult for U.S.-China relations. But on the other hand, it would be a, I, I would think it would be an excellent move uh, in terms of U.S.-Taiwan relations and the U.S. just standing up for its principles of democracy and human rights. All right. Andrews Kaur, thank you again. Thank you. And now we have the top stories from the U.K., Russia, Ukraine and other countries in Europe. Starting with news from Germany, the country's defense minister predicts an increase in Russian attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure during the winter. He says it's vital to strengthen the air defenses and safeguard critical facilities. This comes as Germany won't reach the goal of supplying Ukraine with one million rounds of ammunition. The minister made the announcement today, saying EU members are working together with the industry to ramp up production. The question of whether one million was ever realistic is actually the right one. There have been voices that have said to be careful because one million is easy to decide and the money is there, but the production has to be there. Unfortunately, these voices are right. Meanwhile, Germany's neighbor, the Netherlands, says Europe must keep supporting Ukraine. The Dutch defense minister says allies can't afford any fatigue regarding the war. She also says the Dutch government hopes Ukrainian pilots can start learning to operate F-16 fighter jets as soon as possible. The U.S. in August approved sending F-16s to Ukraine from Denmark and the Netherlands as soon as pilot training is completed. Today is the official opening of this European F-16 training center here in, in Romania. And the Netherlands uh, and Denmark have taken the lead in providing the training to Ukrainian pilots. Uh, we have enlarged the coalition with many other, other countries, uh, also countries doing initial training uh, for pilots. So uh, as soon as possible, we hope also to welcome here Ukrainian uh, pilots and crews. European Union lawmakers on Tuesday amended a proposed law to fight online child pornography. The legislation attempts to balance the need to protect children and the right to privacy. Internet providers would be compelled to assess the risk of online child sexual abuse on their web services. But lawmakers also want to avoid generalized monitoring of the Internet. There were 23,000 reports of online child sexual abuse in the EU in 2010. 
More than 1 million cases were reported in 2020. A similar increase has been seen worldwide. Reports of child abuse on the internet rose from 1 million in 2014 to almost 22 million in 2020. Over 65 million images and videos of child sex abuse were identified. Hungary is set to use nuclear reactors built by Russian companies. Hungary's foreign minister says the nuclear plant should be ready to connect to the country's electricity grid by the start of the next decade. He also says the plant will reduce Hungary's carbon dioxide emissions by millions of tons. Thanks to this nuclear investment, Hungary will remain among those 20 countries which are able to increase their economy by decreasing harmful emissions at the same time. Meanwhile in Russia, a court today is fining Google again. A Moscow court said it's for Google's repeated refusal to store Russian users' data on servers inside Russia. The court is fining Google over $160,000. In August, a Russian court imposed a $30,000 fine on Google. That was for failing to delete allegedly false information about the war in Ukraine. Over in the UK, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is holding the first meeting of his reshuffled cabinet. The new team includes former Prime Minister David Cameron. It's rare for a former leader and a non-lawmaker to take a senior UK government post. Cameron led the government during the Brexit period, triggering the country's withdrawal from the European Union. Sunak was under growing pressure to fire one of his secretaries who became a controversial conservative figure. In the reshuffle, Cameron was appointed to the post of foreign secretary. Iceland has declared a state of emergency and more than 3,000 residents are urged to evacuate from the small coastal town of Grindavik. This comes as authorities anticipate the imminent eruption of a volcano in the country's southwestern peninsula. There was so much panic, so, much, uh, so many earthquakes, just one person holding things while the other one was packing and I survived uh, three volcanoes three earthquakes before and this is uh, the the biggest one so as you can see are you scared of the eruption yeah of course that's why we escape from our town yeah so sorry but we can go and to round up headlines from Europe, we take a look at Lisbon, Portugal. One of the largest tech events in the world has kicked off the Web Summit. The opening night on Monday was led by the new CEO, Catherine Marr. The former CEO resigned due to a controversy around the Irish entrepreneur's tweets on Israel. He suggested Israel was committing war crimes following the October 7 attacks by Hamas. The new CEO addressed the controversy. Paddy will be the first to admit that his tweets were divisive and that they hurt people, including people who consider themselves part of this community. He's since apologized and stepped down. I think it's important to say that I believe that everyone everywhere has the right to express their views about any topic, including what's happening in the world. And now, shifting gears, we have the headlines from the countries in the Asia-Pacific region. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin is asking the Treasury to bar Chinese battery firms and minerals from electric vehicle tax credits. Manchin chairs the Senate Energy Committee. In a letter on Monday, he raised concerns to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. 
He pointed to reports that Chinese battery companies actively pursue business opportunities to take advantage of the credits. The senator wrote U.S. tax credits, quote, cannot be allowed to be hijacked by adversaries engaging in mineral laundering. China is responsible for 76% of the world's lithium-ion battery cell production. And now in the Indo-Pacific, the U.S. and South Korea are holding combined military drills. Naval drills kicked off today off the Korean Peninsula's east coast. The naval drills involved warships and aircraft from both sides. The training continues through Thursday. In a city close to the border with North Korea, U.S. and South Korean militaries held a combined helicopter live fire drill. Apache helicopters from both sides participated. On the same day, defense ministers of the United Nations Command met at the defense ministry in Seoul. They warned North Korea over its nuclear ambitions and threats. A Russian government delegation has arrived in North Korea. The visit is the latest in a series of high-level meetings between Moscow and Pyongyang. Russia's Minister of Natural Resources landed before daybreak this morning. An unidentified group of North Korean officials were waiting to greet him on the tarmac. The Russian official first welcomed North Korean leader Kim Jong-un when he visited Russia in September. North Korea and Russia have discussed economic cooperation for years, but Russia hasn't followed through on major economic projects. A railway renovation across their shared border is an exception. More recently, U.S. authorities have said that North Korea has sold weapons to Russia. North Korean authorities have not announced the agenda or duration of the visit. Thailand has dropped plans for joint patrols with Chinese police following public backlash. It would have happened in high tourist areas. The country's tourism minister made the announcement today. The proposal drew criticism online with concerns over national sovereignty and a rebuke from the country's police chief. The original plan was meant to boost tourist confidence, especially among Chinese visitors. They accounted for over one-fourth of foreign tourist arrivals before COVID-19. For the same reason, Thailand waived visa requirements for Chinese nationals in September. And over in India, rescue operations continue for the 40 workers trapped inside a collapsed tunnel. Rescuers, rescuers began drilling with heavy machinery today. Excavators have been removing debris for two days to carve out a path for the workers. Rescue teams had been waiting for the delivery of a wide steel pipe. It will be pushed into a debris opening to pull out the workers safely. The three-mile tunnel was being built on a national highway. It caved in early Sunday morning in northern India. Now over to China, where there is a convenience store that isn't so convenient. Take a look at this tiny shop hanging on the side of a steep cliff. This store is located 400 feet above ground in a national geological park in central China. People climbing the cliff usually take around 90 minutes to reach the shop, and there they can grab a free bottle of water. Chinese media says workers use zip lines to replenish the stock every day, and only one staff member is inside the store at any given time. A person on Chinese social media nicknamed the tiny shop the most inconvenient convenience store.
Welcome back. Police in Houston are praising an ex-con for his heroic actions when he pulled a wounded police officer to safety. John Lally has served time for burglary, gun possession and other crimes. Now he's a good Samaritan. Investigators say a carjacking suspect shot Officer Jay Gibson. John Lally was driving on a Houston freeway when he saw police lights flashing behind him. He initially thought officers were pulling him over, but soon realized more than half a dozen vehicles had crashed. Moments later, Lally saw Officer Gibson get shot. He jumped out of his car and ran to help, but found himself in the middle of a shootout between police and the suspect. According to local media, he helped another officer drag the wounded Gibson to safety behind a vehicle. The wounded officer was shot in the leg and is recovering. Police say the suspect later died at a hospital. The Houston Police Department plans to formally thank and acknowledge Lally for his heroism. In central Colorado, a missing hiker was found in the Rocky Mountains after getting lost in a severe snowstorm. Rescue crews found footprints in six to eight inches of fresh snow and followed them. The tracks led them to what they thought was a rock, but it was the missing hiker. The person was alive, but very hypothermic and only wearing a cotton hoodie. According to the county search and rescue crews, they spent three hours trying to warm the hiker up. Crews initially used ropes to lower the hiker, who could eventually walk the remaining stretch of the slope. And a new study shows cutting out one teaspoon of salt from your diet each day can help lower your blood pressure just as much as blood pressure medication. Researchers at Northwestern University say the benefits of lowering the amount of sodium in a person's diet were dramatic. Between 70 and 75 percent of people studied saw a drop in their blood pressure, whether they already were on medicine or not. A teaspoon of salt is about 2,300 milligrams. That's the top daily limit for people over 14 years old. However, the Heart American, American Heart Association recommends a diet with less than 1,500 milligrams of sodium each day. The study was published Saturday in the Journal, journal of American Medical Association. And if your favorite holiday tradition is grabbing a blanket, a hot drink, and the TV remote, this job might be the job for you. CableTV.com is looking for a chief of cheer to watch 25 movies in 25 days. The chosen candidate has to keep track of each flick and rank them based on nostalgia, heartwarming storytelling, and holiday cheer. For the work, the chief of cheer will get $2,500 plus a year's subscription to seven streaming services. The best part? There's no list to stick to. The winner gets to pick their favorite holiday movie, whether that's a Hallmark rom-com, an animated classic, or an action thriller like Die Hard. CableTV.com is accepting applications on their website through December 1st. Maybe it's time to switch news, switch uh, jobs here, Steph. <laughs> I don't know about that, Chris. I think we got it pretty good. <laughs> That's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with any news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories tomorrow.